0: following is a teaching message from shore community church for more information on shore for our teaching resources visit www.shore.org.nz okay so we're uh, last week we started this series called your church and it's not an apostrophe error it's actually supposed to be spelt that way because uh, what we're trying to emphasize is you are the church. We are the church. And what we're trying to do essentially is, is to shift the conversation away from talking about church in the third person to cho- talking about church in the first person. So rather than talking about the church should do this or the church is like that, we want to start talking about we We are like this, and and, and we are this, and and we could do that so that we see ourselves not just as getting involved in a church or, or being kind of part of a church at a distance, but as integrally involved, that we're equally responsible, equally part of this thing, equally involved, that we are all, by definition, members of this living, breathing body called the church. And so last week, we just looked at an initial statement, just very simple statement about the church, which was that... Jesus loves the church, that Jesus loves the church, and if we love Jesus, we ought to love the church. We talked about how in spite of all its weaknesses, Jesus loves the church, in spite of its dysfunction and its shortcomings and its brokenness and its sinfulness, and we could catalog all of those things forever. But in spite of all that, Jesus still loves the church because the church is his bride. And therefore, he calls us to love the church, to embrace the messiness of the church, to embrace the ugliness sometimes of the church, and to, to be for the church, to be, to be part of, in the deepest sense, the church because this is what Christ wants for us, and he calls us to live out his vision for the church. And that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks. So we're going to be in one chapter of scripture for the next several weeks, just a single chapter of scripture, and that is Romans chapter 12. Later in the year, we'll, we'll work through a whole book of the Bible in Exodus, but uh, we're going to sort of do the opposite for a few weeks and just spend more time in one concentrated part of Scripture. And it's a very dense chapter of Scripture, so we're going to take it fairly slowly in Romans 12. But it's a significant chapter because it paints a picture of the church community, not a perfect picture, I don't think, not a picture of a perfect church, because Paul is writing this letter. Paul of Tarsus is writing Romans 12, uh, the whole book of Romans, and he's not writing it to a perfect church. He's not writing this to a bunch of people that have completely figured out church life. He's writing this to some house churches in Rome in the middle of the first century, Christians living in Rome. And that community of Christians in Rome was a very mixed community. It was a socially mixed community. It was a racially mixed community. So you had there uh, not only Jews but people from a whole lot of other nations within the Roman Empire as well. And a big struggle within this church was figuring out what it means and how to live together and be together and get on together as a very racially mixed group. That was causing some problems. That was causing a lot of friction. And so Paul writes into that situation to talk about the way in which Jesus has reconciled Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew, to God and to one another as the community of faith. And then we're going we're gonna to look just section by section at this particular chapter in Romans 12, where he really turns to give some practical and pastoral advice for living together as a church. And what I thought we'd do, because we're just taking two verses today, just the first two verses of Romans 12, I thought that we would read this together as a church, as an act of worship, to read these verses uh, together. So the verses are going to be on the screen, I think, here they are, and uh, let's read them from here. This is the NIV translation, we'll read these together and then talk about it. Here we go. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So it's interesting, isn't it, that the the first subject that Paul dives into is the subject of worship. This passage is really like a a pivotal passage in Romans. Uh, That word, therefore, the very first word, is the hinge on which the whole book of Romans turns. Paul spent 11 chapters laying a theological foundation, and now he turns in chapter 12 to start giving more practical and pastoral wisdom. And it all turns on, therefore, and the first subject that he wants to dive into is the subject of worship. And, and for us, as contemporary people, Christians, that word worship will trigger a whole lot of associations for us. We hear worship, and what we tend to think is the stuff that happens on this, in this space here, generally, generally. Right? Most, I think most contemporary Christians would make that association that when we think of worship, we think of what happens up here, or at least from here, on a Sunday in church. Right, This is worship. You have a worship leader here. You have the worship team here. We're singing the worship songs together, worshiping before the great and mighty screen, which gives us our worship words. And so worship is this act, this thing that we do on and off for 90 minutes on a Sunday basically. That's, that's, that's the deal. But when we get to this passage, which is arguably one of the most significant passages on worship in the Bible, what you notice is there is no mention of music here. There's, you can go back to the original Greek and there's no guitar there. There's no mention of keyboards there. There's no hill songs, Chris Tomlin. None of them appear in this passage. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul's anti-music. In fact, if, you, if you've got your Bible open and you look just before this passage, you'll see this passage comes just on the back of an original worship song that Paul wrote at the end of Romans chapter 11. So he's clearly got nothing against lyrical, musical, poetic worship. That's all good. But when he gets to describing worship, what he wants to do is give us a much bigger view than just what happens here for 90 minutes on Sunday. He wants to give us this expansive, comprehensive, panoramic view of worship. And so we've got to, in a sense, put aside our preconceptions, our narrow little conceptions of what worship is, and let this passage start to redefine worship for us from the ground up. So let's walk through it. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, Paul has just spent 11 chapters describing in great detail God's mercy. That's what the first 11 chapters of Romans is, it is an exposition of the mercy of God. And Paul has talked about how all of us, no matter who we are, where we're from, we all stand as sinners under the judgment of God. We're all sinful, but God has revealed his righteousness. God's revealed his mercy by sending us Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's reconciled us to God. He's reconciled us to one another in this spirit-filled community of the Messiah. That's it's, that's effectively Romans 11, 1 to 11 in 20 seconds. That's, Romans 1 to 11 is this great big view of God's mercy. And now Paul says, worship is to be done in view of all that. So the first thing that we should say about worship is that worship is always, always, always a response to the mercy of God. Worship is, in a sense, our responsibility. It is our ability to respond to the grace and the mercy of God. Worship is always a second word. It's never a first word. The first word is always with God. God always speaks the first word. And, And the word God has spoken to us is yes. God's word to us is yes. Yes, you are loved. Yes, you are precious. Yes, you are chosen. Yes, you're forgiven. Yes, you are mine. And now worship is our invitation to respond to that, to respond to it with our lives. Worship, in a sense, is our yes, responding to God's yes to us in Christ Jesus. It's always a response. It's always a second word. It's always to be done in view of, Of the mercy of God. So Paul says, Here's what you do. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. And that's a bit of a jarring phrase, isn't it? Offer your bodies. We might have expected Paul to say, Offer your lives, offer yourselves, offer your hearts. We tend to think and talk about worship as something that's very internal. Worship is, we give our hearts to God. We give our soul to God. But but Paul specifically says, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. I think he does that for a couple of reasons. One is because he wants us to see our body as the case for our whole self. That it's the totality of who we are. Just as that song said, that worship involves every part of us, every single dimension of our being. Our heart, our mind, our soul, our spirit, our body. Worship is physical as well as spiritual, emotional. Worship is the whole package. And I think he says bodies because he wants to take worship into the realm of everyday life, into the realm of the ordinary. Paul wants to push it out of just a church space, and he wants to see worship is as much about what you're going to do when you go home from here as it is about what you do while you are here. And in a sense, worship is very, very ordinary. It is about the ordinary things of our lives. It's, it's the mundane things of our lives. Here's how one writer puts it. Eugene Peterson translates this verse this way in the message. He says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. So that is the totality of our existence. Worship is something that you do at work tomorrow. See, it's pushing our conception of worship, isn't it? To Think of it like that way, but this is how Scripture describes worship. Worship is what we're called to do at home. And I don't just mean pulling out a guitar and having a sing-along. Worship is who you are at home. It's who you are around your friends. Worship is who you are at school. It's who you are at uni. It's who you are when absolutely nobody else is around except God. And that's a worship time. That's worship space, the way you think, the way you speak. Who you are in those times. This is worship. Worship seeps into the cracks and crevices of everyday, ordinary life. It's all of us and it's all of life. In a sense, it's a lot easier to just stand in church and sing songs, isn't it? I mean, if you had to take the choice at this point, you'd probably say, This is actually sounding a lot more demanding than just being in church. I mean, we can stand and sing, Take My Life. That's easy enough. But living this, this is starting to really get into every part of existence. And so Paul says, here's the key phrase. What are we to do with our bodies? We offer them as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This, he says, is your true and proper worship. That phrase, living sacrifice, is really unusual. It's, it's classic Paul to take words like this and put them together in a way that doesn't really even make that much sense, but he's making a profound What he's saying is he's taking us into the world of the temple, into the Jewish temple. The, The temple in Jerusalem was where Jews from all over the world would come to offer sacrifices, often animal sacrifices, for various reasons, to cleanse them from sin, to give thanks to God, to restore them to ritual purity. And they would make these sacrifices as an act of worship to God. This was Israel's worship. This was the way that Israel was called to worship, right from when Moses gave the law. But Paul's saying now that Jesus has come, the very nature of worship is redefined. Because Jesus has come as the true and living sacrifice. He is the one who is the sufficient sacrifice. He's the once-for-all sacrifice. So because Christ has come, we don't need to keep on offering animal sacrifices. We don't need to keep on atoning for our sins. We don't need to continue that practice. But what we are invited to do in response to that is now to bring our lives to the altar. Now we're invited to bring ourselves, and we don't do it to try and deal with our sin. We don't do it to try and earn God's favor. That's been done through Jesus. That's been done through his work on the cross, which is absolutely sufficient. But now we do this in view of God's mercy. Again, we've got to keep that phrase in mind. In view of the all-sufficient mercy of God, now we bring our lives and we lay our lives down as an offering to God. And when you think about this, it's actually quite a grotesque image because animal sacrifices were pretty bloody. I mean, the the priests, they were basically butchers. Throats were slit. Internal organs were removed. Blood was splashed on the altar. I mean, this was a grisly business. And so Paul takes that image and he says, now there's the altar. It's your turn. Up you get. It's, you're, you're, you're the sacrifice now. I mean, this is, pretty, this is pretty grisly. But then he twists it further and he says, you're not just going to be a sacrifice, you're going to be a living sacrifice, which is an oxymoron. It doesn't even make sense because if you are an animal sacrifice, by definition, you'd be dead. Sooner or later, if you offer a sacrifice, the very nature of being a sacrifice means it's going to die. And yet Paul says, no, you're a living sacrifice. Somehow we're living and we're dying at the same time. Because the dying that he's talking about is not our physical bodies. It's dying to self. It's dying continually to our own selfish desires, our selfish proclivities, our selfish habits of thinking and speaking and acting, our self-obsession, our self-preoccupation. And it is living toward others and toward God. Continually moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. That, says Paul, is worship. Whatever else we're going to say about worship, this is where it starts. It is the continual offering of ourselves, dying to self in the ebb and flow of ordinary life. And that's a huge demand. It's a huge demand in our lives. Someone once said the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar, which is true. It's too easy to sort of slither off the old. When you're a living sacrifice, you've got the choice. So you can sort of shirk away over here. It's a huge claim on our lives, this. penetrates every part of our existence. Let me just give you one little anecdote of how this works itself out. A woman in our church was sharing this with me this week, just as, as an anecdote in her life of how this works. And she was on holiday with her family, just around home. And uh, one particular day, she was just kind of in a bit of negative headspace, just not feeling great about things, feeling a bit put upon by other people, feeling a bit taken for granted. She was just kind of feeling a bit irritated. And she was in the kitchen. She was kind of tempted to give the cupboards a bit of a slam just to let everyone else know what was happening. But, and and she, she shared that over summer, she'd had this phrase of dying to self just rattling around in her mind. She'd read it somewhere. She'd been impacted by it. And she just had this idea of dying to self. And in that moment of feeling that way and being irritated, ready to slam a cupboard, she just had that phrase come back into her mind, dying to self. And she said, just in the, in the sheer act of recalling it to mind and just letting that phrase kind of just sit with her there, those, those feelings of frustration and irritability and resentment just seeped away. And she was able to just regain a better headspace and carry on. That's just one little way in which this can work. And it's not always going to be the case that those emotions disappear just by calling to mind that phrase. Sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. But I share that with you just to show you that this is very everyday stuff. This really, worship is about the minutia of life, isn't it? It's our responses. It's our tone of voice. It's our actions and our reactions, often split seconds. But that is, that's a worship decision that she made. That we're choosing to worship or not in the way that we talk in the car on the way home today. You'll worship or not in the car on the way home as much as you'll worship or not in church right now. You're making worship decisions when you interact with your spouse, you're making worship decisions when you interact with your kids, making worship decisions in the way that you make decisions as a family about your future and how much to involve God, how to process that. These are worship decisions. See, we think, well, yeah, okay, I can, it's kind of discipleship maybe, but w- that's worship. That is worship. But again, even as I'm talking, I can feel that this can so easily lead us down the road of legalism and works and trying to earn and strive and behave ourselves and be better Christians. And so I feel the need again and again to come back to the first part of this passage and say all this is in view of the mercy of God. Please don't hear this as about trying to perform your way into God's good books. This is our response to God's yes toward us. God's already said, yes, you are accepted. Yes, you are loved. It's not about that. Yes, you are approved of in Christ. It's not about that, but it's about you responding to that out of your own freedom to respond to God's grace, not to try and earn it. So we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And Paul gives us a couple of phrases in the next verse that flesh out what this means and what it looks like in everyday life. He says in verse 2 and Honestly, I find this the most challenging phrase in in this whole passage. In verse 2, he says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Let me just give you a couple of ways in which people have translated this verse. J.B. Phillips, in his translation, says, Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. And then in the message, Eugene Peterson, Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking about it. It's convicting, hey? That is challenging stuff. I'm, I'm hugely challenged by that because I think we are so squeezed into the mold of the world around us, aren't we? I think for many, many Christians, we, we look virtually indistinguishable from the world, if we're honest. The way we live, the choices we make, our values, our priorities, the way we just go through life, we look virtually indistinguishable from the world. We're so all about being in the world, being relevant to the world, being among the world. We've just become of it. We're just chameleons, just fitting in. We are not a separate people anymore. And God calls us to be a separate people, not to withdraw, not to disengage, but to somehow be different in in, in who we are, in our values and priorities, and the way in which we carry ourselves through life that we are not to be so well adjusted to our culture that we fit into it without even thinking about it. And I see it in my life. Last year Josh started school. He's had uh, a term and a bit now of school, and toward the end of last year he came home with his first report. It's quite cute really, 5-year-olds getting reports, you know. And really all it was is a letter from his teacher about, you know, Josh is fitting in well and he's doing this and that and here's what's happening. And as part of the report uh, the teacher mentioned that there were a couple of letters of the alphabet that he was getting mixed up. Can't remember what they were, but confusing this with this and that with that. And straight away I thought, no, he's not. No, he's not. What are you talking about? I just felt this sort of righteous indignation rising up within me. You know, it's like I, I wanted to take him down there right then. It's like, he knows his letters. What are you talking about? I've seen him do these letters, you know. I'm so concerned about this, you know. And and I I I think now, I think back, and I would I would challenge myself with this question. Am I nearly as concerned about Josh's spiritual progress, advancement, whatever, as I am about his educational advancement? Because that the educational thing gets a reaction from me. The report card gets a reaction in me. But really, do I care nearly as much about his growing awareness of God, understanding of God, experience of God? Do I care nearly as much? About that. It, oh, that's a very challenging question for me. And I think as parents, this is, you know, we we love our kids and there's nothing wrong with valuing their education. But we've got to take a moment and ask are we so well adjusted to our culture that we care about their educational advancement more than their spiritual advancement? That we care about their musical advancement or their sporting advancement more than we care about their spiritual advancement advanced. none of those things are bad none of those th- they're all good of course we want them to succeed but that's the problem we want those things so much other things get left behind i heard tim keller this week say the problem with the world is not the bad things but it's the good things that become the best things that's the problem hey eh? it's the good things no one's wanting to poke a stick at education or sport or music but it's when the good things become the best things that we have conformed to our culture And we've become so well-adjusted to it, we've just slotted in. And that's a worship problem. That's not just life, that's not just church. This is worship we're talking about. So these are worship decisions. I don't just mean to pick on parents, I'm picking on myself because I am a parent. But this goes into how we make decisions about our finances, how we process opportunities that come along for our family's future, how we schedule our time, how we conduct ourselves in relationships with each other. This goes into every part of life. Have we become so well-adjusted to our culture? And I I felt as I was putting this message together, what we need to do just for a minute is just to be still and just let God speak and lay on our heart any way in which this is true for us. Is there any way in which you have become so well-adjusted to the culture around you, you've just fitted into it without even thinking about it? And it's compromising your worship of God. It's become an idol. Let's just take a minute now. God, just as you're bringing these things to mind, we confess them to you, God. And we don't allow them to load us up with guilt and with shame and with regret. We simply confess them to you, God, and we say that we want to move forward from here into a richer and fuller life of worship in who we are and the way that we live. Give us hope now, God, that we can put aside these idols, reprioritize whatever we need to, and in your strength, worship you more fully in our everyday lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So one final phrase, and then I want to pull all this together. On the other side of that statement where Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, he says, be transformed. This is the the positive statement. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transformed is the word morphe, from which we get the word metamorphosis. It's the word that describes that kind of process where the caterpillar changes into the butterfly where there's a change in condition, and this is what our lives of worship are supposed to be, a metamorphosis away from self-preoccupied, self-governed life towards a life that is lived fully towards God. And Paul says it happens through the renewing of your mind. We're not just talking about behavior. We're not just talking about your conduct. We're talking about a deep internal shift in how we think about life. And that means starting to tell, tell ourselves a bit of a different story, I think. A bit of a different story about life and what the goal of life really is. That the goal of life, the goal of our family life, the goal of our own life, it's not self-fulfillment. It's not, it's not even happiness. It's not comfort, convenience, and ease of life. It is Christ. It is our lives becoming conformed to the image of Christ. And I think when we set that goal before us as the telos, as the end of Life is the goal of life. Our choices start to look different along the way. Our minds gradually become renewed. Now, here's what I want to say in wrapping all this up, because I know that this is supposed to be a series on the church. And a lot of what we've talked about today is very individual. It's very about what happens out there when you're on your own or in little groups, and and it's not so much about the church. But just notice something at the beginning of this passage. Paul says, In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies plural, as a living sacrifice, singular. So I think what Paul's saying there is as we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, each of us, we are becoming, as a church, a living sacrifice together. The picture is really of the whole community coming together, not as a set of isolated individuals, but a whole community coming together, becoming a living sacrifice together to God which requires each of us being living sacrifices in our own lives. What that means is there is a strong connection between our worship here on Sunday and your worship in your own life in pursuing Christ during the week. An inseparable connection. That if all we do is gather together on Sundays and sing songs and take communion and worship together, and that's not being sustained by a life of worship where we are, in each moment offering ourselves as living sacrifices, dying to self, living toward God, this worship here is going to be quite empty and hollow. And we can have all the music and we can do all the things, but it will be lifeless and hollow if it is not supported by an individual life of worship. Our worship here on Sundays is supposed to to be fed into by our worship during the week that we've been seeking to be living sacrifices and we've failed miserably and we bring all of that to church on Sunday, and we confess, and we thank God for His grace anyway, and we fall at His feet, and we receive fresh mercy, and we renew our minds, and we tell again the great story of salvation, and we receive the strength of the Spirit as we walk out the doors into a life of worship in the coming week. So it feeds into worship and it feeds out of worship. And if that feeding into and out of is not happening, worship here, despite everything that we might put into it, will be impoverished. It will not be true and full worship. And so if you feel at times like, hey, you know, the worship maybe is a bit lifeless or it's lacking, then with the greatest of respect, it may be that you need to look at your life. Because worship is a life. It's a whole lifestyle. And worship works when it's every day. And Sundays is the culmination of that as we gather together. But it's got to be sustained and supported by being worshippers in the decisions we're making all the time. Worship is constant and it's continuous, but it is by the grace of God. And it is just, again, our yes in response to God's yes.